So I was watching V for Vendetta last night. There is a scene in the third act of that film where the main character, V, has threatened to blow up the Houses of Parliament and the authoritarian government can't find him and uh, John Hurt, who plays the dictator, has this scene where he bellows at his minister for propaganda and he says, flood the airwaves with tales of horror and violence in order to scare the populace into submission. Um, I'm paraphrasing, but he says something like, I want them to remember why they need us. And the film then cuts forward to a few weeks later, and uh, uh, there's a family sat in a living room, and they're watching the news, and the news is showing biblically proportioned catastrophe after biblically proportioned catastrophe. And one of the family turns to the other uh, member and says, can you believe this bullshit? They've been doing this all summer. And it's a really brilliant illustration, I think, of the philosophy of Thomas Hobbes, um, who was the guy that said that it's the nature of humanity to be bestial, and that without the corrective influence of strong government, we would all revert to savagery and tear each other apart. So we need government. And whether you believe Hobbes or not, you can't really deny the beautiful simplicity of his argument, and how useful that argument is for any group who rules over a large body of people. Now, I'm not saying, I don't think, that the recent spate of apocalyptic stories in the press and all the weird stuff that's going on in the world has been organised by some kind of malevolent cabal. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Uh, really, I don't actually believe that our politicians are capable of organising anything that sophisticated. Maybe I'm naive, you know, um, it's possible, but it's quite a comforting shield and I quite like to keep it. But th the thing is, you know, this podcast, we've been away for a, a few months and in that time the world has gotten so much more bizarre and um, it's getting harder and harder to find comfort or hope in the big narratives that are shaping our contemporary world. What I keep having to remember are that there are discrepancies between official cant and unofficial chatter, between uh, party lines and private interactions, between the state and the people that live in it, or make it up. Donald Trump, he got up in front of the Republican National Convention early this year and he said um, something like, we are drowning in crime and I alone can save us. And it was this, you know, it was a huge, um, it was a big, big statement to make. And people came afterwards and said, actually, you know, violent crime in the U.S. is going down. But it didn't matter because he managed to create this story and people believed him. And, and I think that that's, you know, I'm not going to engage in much political speculation in this particular episode because there's plenty of that out there and people are doing a much better job than I could. I just, I do think that part of the problem might be in our willingness to credit official cant that says that everything is going to hell. Um, and on that note, I wanted to start this brand new season of Stage Blether by turning away from the official, from the professional, from the sanctioned, and spending a little bit of time uh, thinking about and celebrating a very maligned concept in, at least in theatre studies. So without further ado, welcome to Stage Brother, a weekly podcast exploring theatre and performance based in Scotland. My name is Sam Haddo, and you're listening to Series 2, Episode 1, Amateur Hour. Pencil on paper and ink in your throat Why should the world give a damn what you wrote? You're one more broke poet who will never go far With a tuneless piano and a painted guitar so, we're back. It's been a while, and, uh, yeah, 
everything seems to have taken a bit of a chaotic turn. Pretty much every radio station, television channel, newspaper, podcast, online forum and public space is full of obsessive recountings of the US election. Ah, I was thinking about this. I mean, um, after the Brexit vote back in June, we did a show immediately afterwards on the um, Anarcho Folk Festival. Uh, uh, hang on. And um, and I was compelled to run towards localised groups with uh, whom I had you know something in common. So I went to, to spend a weekend with hippies, basically. Not basically, that's what I did. Um, and it makes sense, I think, that, that that would be the impulse that I had. And the world is full of huge forces that are bigger than any one of us. And that facing those forces alone is, is overwhelming. And so we cluster together in times of peril. Um, now... This sounds like it's. I'm going to start making the argument that what the world needs now is love, sweet love, and all that stuff. And I want to be clear. Uh, there's a lot of people who are saying that. That you know, part of the reason that we're in such a mess is that we've had an overabundance of and overtolerance of hatred, and that what we need in the face of bigotry and small-mindedness and prejudice is is love. Um, I don't know if I agree with that. Um, personally, I'm kind of on the side of what the world right needs right now is for humans to stop screwing with it, but. That's maybe a conversation for another time. For now, I thought that I would kick off season two with a discussion of a topic uh, that's quite taboo in theatre, as I said, that's quite maligned, the amateur. Now, the amateur is uh, a weird term. Let's start off with trying to define it. It it can mean doing something as a pastime rather than a profession. Um, It can mean doing something for free. Or it can mean... um, doing something without skill or dedication. And the last one, you know, using that particular definition, is an insult. It's pejorative. It's where you say, you bunch of amateurs. And uh, and what you do when you say that is you're judging the quality of something or the quality of somebody's output or somebody's commitment to their job. But the first two definitions, doing something for free and doing something as a pastime, they're not necessarily insults. You know, just because you do something for fun doesn't mean that um, it's going to be no, it's going to be bad and you'll be no good at it. But there is a snobbery that is built into our very comprehension of the term amateur. And it's, I think it's bound up quite explicitly with money. Unless somebody is doing something as a job, which theoretically means that they're skilled to a, a centrally regulated level, um, but actually, you know, it just means they're getting money for it, then uh, we're not really interested. You know, either you're doing it for money or you're no good at it. And that... When you put it like that, it's kind of it is odd because we, plenty of us know people that do things professionally who are completely useless at them, and yet that's kind of the mark of of quality is whether or not you can be paid for it. So the value of a skill, by that token, is monetary, as a kind of an un- unconscious bias that we have, um, and therefore we value in accordance with cash. All right, fine. I'm not saying anything particularly unusual, am I? So far, so predictable. Um, but if we think, think, but you know, if we think in terms of amateur, in terms of theatre. Um, then we find an even greater snobbery because amateur theatre in Britain is a genre uh, in its own right. You know, you say amateur theatre and it conjures up images of middle-aged men and women in provincial towns and villages running endless revivals of Agatha Christie and really bad heritage Shakespeare and the annual pantomime and having torrid affairs, sniping at one another because the potato salad was rubbish at this year's or this month's uh, meeting of the Rotary Club and all that kind of stuff, you know, with, with theatrical sensibilities that are really firmly grounded in the 1940s. Um, and, you know, to some extent, I suppose that kind of stuff does go on. I have had personal experience of, of some kind of theatre that relates to this. Um, but I actually have a particular fondness for that kind of theatre. I'll talk, maybe talk about that in a bit. But I should also say that amateur theatre does not just 
mean that particular kind of theatre. It also encompasses a huge range of other kinds of theatre, which includes things like school plays, student drama, applied theatre, any kind of therapeutic uh, theatrical production, and in some cases even includes the use of non-professional actors in professional productions. So really, to say amateur theatre or amateur in theatre can be split into a couple of different ways. Um, You're either making a negative judgment on quality or you're referring more technically to the work of non-professional actors. You can call a production amateur and it not be a negative thing. But the first problem that I want to pose in terms of amateur performance is how are we supposed to approach it? Because you, you do have that thing of you see a, a show and somebody says it's, it's an amateur production and you are automatically prevented from engaging with it in the way that you would engage with a professional production, certainly in terms of um, holding the performers and the directors and so on to a high standard. I mean, in some cases, this is obvious. You wouldn't go and see a school play and say, well, the characterization was rubbish, the dramaturgy was non-existent, the script was lame, I'm never coming back here at all, give me, my, give me a refund, and so on. It just wouldn't happen, because that's not the kind of thing that you're there for. Um... But it still is, you know, apart from the the examples of school theatre and so on, if you go and see amateur theatre that's on in in a, I don't know, a local village hall or even a kind of a a town or city theatre, then it's open to the general public and therefore it is, theoretically at least, trying to provide the public with a a theatrical experience and therefore they should be able to respond to it in a a way that is critical. Um, But this is the problem. On the one hand we tend to feel that we should not hold amateur performance to the same standards of professional performance because, you know, that's not what the performers signed up for. That's not what they're there for. They're not professionally trained. They're not making a living out of it. They're doing it for fun, for love, whatever. So therefore, we should be kinder to them. And it's always that, isn't it? It's always, when we talk about um, uh, responses, we're always talking about how much are we allowed to criticise it. I say we all. I could just be talking about myself. Maybe all of you are lovely human beings and you never feel like criticising an amateur performance. Mm, I doubt it, but, you know. I should uh, hedge my bets. That's not the right term. Anyway, where were we? Um, so yeah, so the performers are not trying to make professional theatre, therefore they shouldn't be subjected to the kind of critiques that you offer to professional performers. But on the other hand, you kind of patronise amateur performers if you don't engage with them on some kind of aesthetic level, because you write off the fruit of their labours simply by dint of the fact that it doesn't involve money. You know? Um, it's amateur, therefore we shouldn't subject it to any kind of, of critique. Which rather devalues the work of art itself. Devalues not in a monetary sense, but devalues in terms of a sense of its of its quality as art. And I should say that, you know, I have seen a, a large amount of terrible amateur theatre. I've also seen a large amount of terrible professional theatre, but I have seen some professional, sorry, um, amateur theatre, which is better than a lot of professional theatre, and that is a very subjective term and so on. Okay, I've seen some amateur theatre which I feel has provided me with a theatrical experience that was full-blooded, that was affective, that I came away from feeling um, charged by, that I came away from feeling uh, challenged by, that I came away from thinking that it's changed my my notion of what theatre is. One, I mean, just pulling an example out of thin air, was I went to a production of Closer, the Paddy Marble play, when I was about 20, the University of York was directed by another student who was a couple of years above me, and it was an absolutely spectacular production of that play. I've not seen, um, a, well, I've not seen a, a better production of Closer since then. I've seen a couple of professional productions. So there are examples in which amateur theatre can actually operate, compete, and, you know, be better than professional theatre on its own terms. 
So one of our challenges then, one of my challenges in this episode, is trying to establish some form of critical framework that can account for, on the one hand, the inexperienced or perhaps the less prepared nature of amateur theatre and its practitioners, but also that can enable us to properly consider and engage with the work that we are being shown. Now that's the first challenge, is trying to establish that kind of vocabulary. And I have to say, you know, from now, I'm going to fail in this instance. What I'm going to do, what I'm going to end up doing, I think, is is focusing on one very small aspect of amateur performance. And I I've, I think I've, there's a thing that I think amateur theatre does or can do that is unique to it and that is a strength that if when exploited can produce work of quite extraordinary intensity and I will talk um, specifically about one example of that. Um, there is in amongst all this there's another question that we have to ask which is how do we conceive of the figure of the amateur performer themselves? How do we address them and I suppose more importantly how do we receive what they tell us because the amateur performer is somebody who has committed themselves to a particular task they didn't need to. They didn't, you know, this is not something that they're relying upon for their livelihood or whatever. So according to the laws of advanced capitalism, neoliberalism, whatever you want to call it, the industrial capitalism, where you work to live and then you have your leisure time where you relax and so on, they have kind of gone against the trend and they have decided to do something which is a job, but they're doing it not for money. So what how how do they function for us how do we address them and i will talk about that in um in terms of bernard stiegler shortly now i said i'd talk about concrete examples so uh last night i'm recording this on uh, friday the 25th of november so last night was thursday the 24th of november 2016 i attended a short participatory performance piece um in a restaurant called punjabi junction in leith on leith walk which is a wonderful restaurant by the way and if anyone's listening to this in uh in edinburgh go i haven't actually eaten there i just love the building itself and i want to go because the, the menu looks fantastic anyway the um the performance the purpose of the performance was to observe um the 1947 partitioning of india and pakistan by the british government as they withdrew their influence and military presence um and uh, washed their hands of a place and people that they'd been colonised, well, they, they had colonised for almost a century. So in 1947, the British government pulled out of India, and sort of partitioned it off into India and Pakistan and carved up um, various regions um, in order to give part of them to, to India and part of them to East and West Pakistan. Um, and this event was run by um, a colleague of mine who uh, is one of the two people that does the State of the Theory podcast at India Raichaudhry, who works on partition and who had spent the last five years or so conducting oral history interviews with people who had survived partition and had gathered an enormous amount of material and some quite extraordinary stories of people, of the things that they'd experienced while this was going on, because it was an incredibly violent and uh, tragic series of events that happened as a direct consequence of the British government deciding that this uh, the petition was going to happen. Um, and the, 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 the stories that he's collected, they're, they're extraordinary in the sense that of the, of the horrific events that had happened, but also they're extraordinary in the sense that people were able to endure and to talk about these events with a, a dignity um, and an articulacy that I, and I think the people that, that attended this event, found to be enormously humbling. Now, an Indian and I had a conversation back in the spring where um, he was saying he wanted to use the stories that he's collected as um, a basis for some kind of performance. And he, I think originally he was thinking about something to do with documentary theatre, which is a, a genre of theatre that has become very popular in recent years, particularly in Britain, um, where you go and you conduct research or you ask, talk to people about things and record their testimonies or you take testimonies from wherever in, uh, in the public discourse and you edit these things together. Then you turn it into a script and you give it to actors and the actors perform on stage. So it's kind of the actors 
take the role of real people and they perform edited accounts of their testimonies. And it, um, it's, it, there's a particular strand of documentary theatre which is called verbatim, which is something that I have an enormous problem with, um, partly because I think the word verbatim is hugely misleading because it's this notion of truthfulness. And actually, documentary theatre well, is very doctored, is very um, subjective by its very nature. I will have this rant another time. Well, there isn't time for it now. What uh, I, want, I want to say now is that, um, so we had this conversation, and um, eventually we we kind of came to this idea that a useful approach to his work and to trying to get his work performed might be, instead of editing the stories into a script to be performed by actors, that we could maybe, well, he could maybe encourage audience members to read aloud extracts of the stories themselves. Um... So that's what he did. We turned up last night and there was the, they'd set out a circle of chairs in this um, restaurant. And it was kind of, it was a very strange experience because the restaurant was very brightly lit. Leith Walk is very busy. It was a very rainy night. So you've got this kind of little haven of warmth and light and there's rain outside and so on. But there's also noise of traffic. Um, and yet when we started doing the performance, actually it suddenly felt very quiet and very um, somber. And what happened was he uh, he gave everybody that turned up a couple of cards. In an, um, each card was in an envelope, and so you you just handed a blank envelope with a card inside it, and you opened the envelope, and inside you, you read the card. Um, and we went around in a circle, and people read aloud what was written on their cards. Now the cards had been shuffled up, so there was no uh, logical chronology to the events that were being described. It was just whatever order they happened to be said in, and the, the, there were names of the people who had given the testimonies on the cards, but. We were not given any kind of contextual information about these people. It was just their words being read by us, who are amateurs. Now, and that's, I think, I've been wondering about whether or not we can call this amateur performance. The um, the performance was curated by an India who himself is a professional researcher. Um, and it was underwritten by money that he'd obtained from private, from, from public funds rather, and grants and so on. So technically, I suppose it was in some ways a professional production, but it used the audience, all of whom were amateurs. So therefore, I think that there's a strong amateur feeling to this. Um, and once we'd read aloud the stories, we were invited to write a response to these stories on the back of the cards, and then we went around, then we went around and read those aloud. And some of them, the stories, you know, one of the stories was about a family who had had to move. Um, and they loved the house they were living in so much that they uh, got they took the local builder that had built their house with them, and they got him to build. Well, they built the same house, I think, out of the same materials in the place where they went to. So there was some light relief. But then there were other stories about people throwing babies into lakes because they were terrified of the violent fate that awaited all of them. So they wanted to spare the babies. There were stories of women throwing themselves into wells to avoid being raped because death was considered less dishonourable. There were stories about train carriages filled with blood, um, spoken by children. And it, it's an area of history that I don't know anything about. I was talking with um, an Indian partner afterwards about um, the history curriculum that had been offered to us as children and, you know, the partition of India and Pakistan. In fact, the entire history of Indian Pakistan. To be honest, really, as far as my education was concerned, anything that wasn't British history and anything that wasn't directly connected to the Corn Laws, the First World War or the Tudors wasn't really part of my education. Um, and to my shame, this is still something that I don't know much about. And the experience of the event was overwhelming, as I said. Each audience member, they read simply, and they read without much in the way of hyperbole or artifice. Of course, the nature of the stories did affect their voices, 
once you realize that you're reading a story about babies being thrown into a lake, you do, you start, there's a kind of a tone that you adopt, which is, I suppose, reverential and somewhat <sighs> upset isn't anywhere near the right word, but, you know, um, emotional, I suppose. But for the most part, um, because of the nature of the event, which was a kind of commemoration using real testimony, um, and in fact, in one case, one of the members of the audience had actually survived partition himself, there was a sense that it would have been somehow unethical to act, to perform. So what we were trying to do, I suppose, or doing maybe unconsciously, was reading without performing, and yet what we were doing was creating a performance, very much so. I mean, it very, very much was, it felt like a storytelling performance. And... Uh, I should say, of course, that you know, not that anti-performance or non-performance is not a special province of the amateur. Professional uh, uh, performers can also act without, you know, acting. If that makes sense. Um, but I think that this is an arena in which the amateur is on equal footing. That the kind of trying to not or not, not not even trying to not perform just reading naturally whatever that means that's something in which the amateur can be as good as a professional performer and i think in addition to this because because it was not a professional production in the sense that the performers were not professional as i said there was a value system at work that was not transactional you know and i've got to be careful here because one of the problems with non-professional actors in performance is that certain companies in recent years have started to really exploit the use of unpaid actors. And there's a, a particular, there's a company called Yumi Bum Bum Train who do experiential theatre in London. And uh, the idea is that in their shows, one spectator at a time will go through a huge labyrinth of rooms and in every room they're faced with a particular scenario in which they have to do something. So they'll go into one room and there'll be a team of football players looking at them and suddenly they're the coach and they have to deliver a motivational speech uh, before a cup final. And then in the next room, they'll have won gold at Crufts and they'll have to give a speech. And then the next room, they'll have to negotiate with a terrorist who's taken hostages and so on and so on and so on. Um, I've never been to one of these things. They sell out within a nanosecond of it being announced and you have to be on the mailing list for years and years and years. But I've heard that people go and, you know, it's, it's amazing. But the shows use hundreds of actors and they don't process massive audiences because you're only sending one person through at a time. So even if they charge an astronomical amount for tickets, which I think they do charge quite a lot for tickets, uh, but even then you're not going to make any kind of money. So what they do is they advertise for volunteer actors to turn up and to be performers in the show. And people do it because they, it's experience, because they might get contact, because they, you know they might even enjoy it. But um, this is hugely problematic for equity which is the actors union who's trying very hard to get actors into jobs and these jobs are being siphoned away by people who are not being paid and of course this then sets a precedent for other companies to use volunteer actors and so on i mean there was one recently um, an example of this where um the lyceum theater uh raman gray directed david greggs the supplicant women and they used a chorus of i think 50 local women who were volunteer actors now i haven't actually read any backlashes against this and it may be that because the, that production had a really strong localised um, remit and it was about the people of Edinburgh and trying to connect the people of Edinburgh to the uh, people of the polis two and a half thousand years ago that maybe people kind of didn't mind so much. But often the use of non-professional actors, particularly a lot of them in professional theatre, can be a huge problem. And I, I have got some sympathy with people who get annoyed with this. 
Um, so I'm not talking, I'm not saying that, you know, that non-transactional theatre where you don't pay for a ticket is necessarily a good thing. What I'm saying is that there's a particular aspect of amateur performance where an audience can be encouraged by dint of the non-professional nature of the event to participate as a group and to assume certain aspects of responsibility that they otherwise might automatically hand over to the people running the show. Because a professional production assumes at least a kind of um, a certain expertise and responsibility on the part of its practitioners. You know, you, as a spectator, you put yourselves in the hand of the people that make the theatre. You buy your ticket and then you're kind of theirs for a while. Even if you're going to see um, a participatory performance where you'll be expected to get involved or some kind of devised lunacy, there's still an underlying assumption that the people who are in charge know what they are doing because this is their job and therefore that you are in safe hands. You don't necessarily have that with amateur theatre. Not saying that you go to see Amsterdam and you think it's going to be terrible, but there's a more of a sense of a collective responsibility for the product. There can be a sense of a collective responsibility for the the show itself, and um, a particular. So this is a strength I think that amateur theatre can have. Not all amateur theatre, but it's something that it can draw upon. And I include the Anarcho Folk Festival in this. You know, the one I went to see where it was a huge DIY festival, and a lot of the time people were just getting up onto stage and performing with a guitar because they felt like it, not because they'd been booked in to do so. Um, and in this sense, the production can be what we make it, whatever our skills and our competencies happen to be. And there are crossovers, of course. About a year ago, um, for example, I, I went to a show by that had been designed by a German company called Rimini Protocol. And it took place in the house of two of the audience members who lived in the Bonneu in Paris. And we turned up, and there was like, I think about nine spectators, uh, and we were invited into this, this living room and we... we we all sat down and then there was somebody who was working for Rimini Protocol and they guided us through this conversation about Europe um, after the Second World War. Um, and it was kind of, it was really odd. Because, and the, the, the weirdest thing about it was that the whole bloody thing was in French, of which I do not speak a word. So I had to get somebody else to translate it for me as I was there. Um, but nevertheless, even though it was a professional production, it still had that quality of the amateur quality that I'm trying to talk about. And I've been trying to think of a, a way that of describing this amateur quality that doesn't sound trite. And I came across uh, a short text written by the French political scientist Bernard Stiegler that I think describes some of this in a way that I, I quite like. Now, I've talked about Stiegler before. He's a very prolific thinker and he studied under Derrida and he keeps coming back to a certain set of ideas in his work. And one of these ideas has to do with the destruction of desire under late capitalism. Now, I'm so this is me going from discussions of theatre into... Very big narrative uh, deconstructionist. You can't say big narrative deconstructionist. That's a massive paradox. I do apologise to any theorist who may be listening. Uh, lofty, should I say, or generalising, or grandiose. Oh, stop trying to nail yourself to a wall, Sam. Right, anyway, Stiegler. So, Stiegler talks about the destruction of desire, because for Stiegler, we are made human by a combination of two things. One, belief, and it's always belief in impossible or unquantifiable things like love, and on, and also desire, which for him is always a desiring to believe. So we, there's this, this need that we have to believe in things that are bigger than ourselves that are impossible, and the, the kind of energy that propels us that way is desire, desiring to believe. Um, in order to fulfill this, which is what he sees as our proper functions as people, we create networks of desire where we rationalize ourselves in line with other people, and it's through the sharing of our desires that we then form senses of community. But the thing is, for Stiegler, capitalism derives all of its value from that which can be calculated, you know, money, in other words. And so capitalism attacks the very concept of anything that cannot be quantified. Our energies, thus, are channeled away from the things that we desire and towards things that we can possess. 
And so in the process, we are neutered, we are dulled, we, our ability to desire is eroded. I'm going to quote from Stieglitz at length now, because I think, uh, because he, he develops his thinking, um, this idea in terms of, of the amateur, and he does it in a way in which I think is relevant for this discussion. His position is extreme, I should say, and I don't necessarily agree with all of it, but it's worth hearing. He says, The dissociation of the worker from his or her worksite lay at the basis of the industrial organisation of labour. Correspondingly, the dissociation of the consumer from his or her sites of leisure lies at the foundation of the industrial organization of the spectacle. The amateur resists this double dissociation and does so because the time of the amateur is that which resists the dissociation of the time of life into time of work and the time of leisure. What he seems to be saying here is that the amateur resists the categorization of life into which we all, as good consumers and workers, are supposed to fall. This is when you work, this is when you uh, rest. The amateur uses their leisure time to be, to be productive, which I mentioned at the beginning, and they don't do it for the reasons that they're supposed to. It's worth pointing out, I suppose, that Stiegler's argument is flawed because he doesn't really take into account those of us who are fortunate enough to do jobs that we like, or those who do our jobs out of some kind of duty or pride, and also he doesn't really seem to take into account those who do not work, or at least work only as much as they absolutely need to and spend more of their time involved in leisure. And I'm fortunate enough to know many people who fit into all of those categories. Um, but I like his valorization of the amateur as a political figure. And I think that's quite important. So he goes on in, in later on in the text, and he draws an important, well, an intriguing comparison. He says, the figure of the amateur is the ideal type for the economy of contribution because the amateur is the one who builds him or herself a sustainable libidinal economy and does not expect industrial society to put it in place. In this regard, the hacker is a subversive figure in his or her ability to appropriate the technological and industrial situation without conforming to its requisite prescriptions, from marketing through to plans for industrial development. Hackers are neither consumers, nor clients, nor users. They are practitioners, that is to say, amateurs of the world in the age of its numerization. Working outside of salaried work time, such as one sees in the case of hackers, or occasional performers, is exemplary of the work of the amateur. Now, this is appealing, the conflating of the hacker and the amateur, and I think probably for obvious reasons it makes that the amateur seem quite sexy. Um, I think part of the significance of the hacker, apart from the threat that they pose to the established order, is that they demonstrate a kind of intelligence that contradicts a basic principle of professionalism, which is that skill is regulated by the exposure to the uh, standards of a given industry. You know, you learn your skills by working in this particular environment, and this particular environment is regulated by the people who've already worked there, and so on. Um, and the amateur, or the hacker rather, doesn't do that. The hacker learns their skills themselves. They the, the, you know, the image of the hacker is somebody who's got a natural flair for um, technology, who's a digital native, who sits in their bedroom and is able to bring down corporations as a consequence. Um, they're a savant, essentially, a kind of an outlier. And we've always really quite liked those figures. Um, if you think about, like, Sherlock Holmes is one of those. He's he does the job of a detective, but he's not a detective. Or um, in real life, you've got somebody like Mozart, who composed his music without training or support from the established music industry and so on. These are savants. These are geniuses. And geniuses, by Stiegel's logic, are kind of the, the apotheosis or the, the last word in the amateur. Like I say, Stiegel's position is extreme, and I don't subscribe to it in its entirety. 
Because if we were to reject all professional art, then we'd pretty much have to do away with everything. And although money is by no ma means a guarantee of good art, neither is it a guarantee of bad art. But to think of the amateur as a liminal figure, as somebody who has the power because they do not fit the established patterns of production and consumption, I think that is a really, really appealing idea. And that hopefully answers some of the questions that I asked at the beginning about the amateur and about how we approach amateur theatre, uh, amateur performance rather, um, and about the kind of things that amateur performance can do that it has as a strength. And for me, and for at the moment particularly, I think the communitarian aspects of participation by amateurs is something that is not only powerful, but also very necessary. So, that's the end of the first episode of Season 2. It's slightly longer than normal. Um, I had quite a lot to say, as it turns out. But we're going to try and do, I think, an episode a week for a while. Uh, term is finished, so I don't have to write lectures every week at the moment. Um, so my, my thinking is that I'm going to try. And, you know, maybe for December and, um, and into January we'll, we'll try and do some more episodes. Um, thanks for listening. I uh, hope you're all well. Um, as ever, the theme tune was Polly Edwards, One More Broke Poet. Um, if you like this, go and listen to an India Ray Chowdhury and Hannah Fitzpatrick's podcast, State of the Theory, which is um, has offered one of the more uh, salient analyses of the Trump election that I've heard recently. Um, and take very good care of yourselves. I shall be back next week. Bye! Hey